Hello and welcome to episode 132 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story returns to a common theme on this podcast, which is the ability for anyone to pretend to be anyone they want to be on the internet. Take a look at my website at uktruecrime.com to read an excellent and personal piece from Michael of Murder Mile Tours and the Murder Mile podcast. It's all about what he does and why. And if you haven't listened, his podcast is excellent. Please do go and check it out. Before we begin, let's set some context by looking at the music that we were listening to on the 25th of October 2009. Thrash metal dominated the charts, with Cheryl at the top spot with Fight for This Love, followed by Alexandra Burke with Bad Boys. In the US, it was Britney leading the pack with Three. And in the Australian album charts, friend of the show, the Buble, was ruling the roost with Crazy in Love. Remember kids, Michael Buble is for life, not just for Christmas. I was living in Vegas at this time, thinking I was a pro poker player. Soon realising, to my financial cost, I really wasn't, but it was a lot of fun trying. Elsewhere in the news, after having closed borders for nearly 200 years, Armenia and Turkey signed protocols in Zurich to open their borders. British Mercedes driver Jensen Button finished fifth in the Brazilian Grand Prix to clinch his first F1 World Drivers' Championship. Except for maybe a Kings of Leon concert, life doesn't get much more exciting than watching that, huh? (laughs) That's for you, clogs. And a bomb in Baghdad killed 155 people and wounded at least 721. In the UK, this was the month that the Evening Standard became a free newspaper in central London and the British National Party leader, Nick Griffin, made his controversial first appearance on the BBC One political debate programme, Question Time. Suffice to say, it didn't go very well. Today's story comes from the northeast of England, near Sedgefield in County Durham. Sedgefield is a small town with a population approaching 6,000 people, about 30 miles southeast of Newcastle, and is probably best known for their sitting MP for a number of years, Tony Blair. Ashley Hall lived nearby. She was 17 and lived with her mum and her three younger sisters. She was in her final year of a childcare course at Darlington College and was aiming for a career as a childminder or a nursery nurse. Ashley was a former brownie and guide. She loved animals and she had pet hamsters and goldfish. Like her friends, she spent many hours chatting to her friends online, but like so many 17-year-olds, or people of any age for that matter, the confidence she portrayed disguised insecurities. Ashley was a typical messy teenager, interested in boys, the internet and mobile phones, and like many of her friends, she was highly impressionable. And though she was interested in boys, she had little experience of the opposite sex. Sunday the 25th of October 2009 was just a normal Sunday in the Hall household. Ashley was in a good mood and had spent the Sunday evening, as she often did, on the computer, chatting on the internet through MSN Messenger. At about 7.30pm, she asked her mum, Andrea, if she could go for a sleepover at her friend's house. It was a little short notice, but not thinking much of it, her mum agreed, as long as she was back at 10.30 the next morning. Ashley threw some clothes in a bag and went downstairs. 
Andrea was still putting her younger sisters to bed when Ashley opened the door and shouted, See you tomorrow, Mum. Her mum shouted back to make sure she was home by 10.30am. Ashley said, I will, and that was it. She was off on her way. The next day, 10.30 came and went. This was most unlike Ashley, and as the minutes became hours, her mum kept calling her phone at least 30 times during the day, but there was no answer. As she began to panic, she contacted Ashley's friends, and Andrea takes up the story of what happened next. One of her friends told us that Ashley had been talking to a boy. I went onto my Facebook account and looked at Ashley's page and saw a boy who said he was 17 who was not linked to any of her other friends. That made me suspicious straight away. I asked her friends about him but nobody knew if she'd been talking to him or texting him. There were no messages from him on her page but she might have been messaging him in private. Andrea had always been close to her daughter and Ashley had never given her any reason at all not to trust her. She'd always been a sensible girl, who wouldn't let her friends and family worry about her. But when a man's voice eventually answered her phone at around 8pm that evening, Andrea knew that something was seriously wrong. What she could never have known was that her daughter had suffered the misfortune of coming into contact with 33-year-old Peter Chapman. He was a dangerous loser with a history of sexual violence against women. He had the face that only a mother could love. No, really. And as he looked so pitiful, it meant that women trusted him and didn't realise just what he was capable of doing. Chapman was brought up by his parents in northeast England in Stockton-on-Tees. His offending started early, and in 1993, at the age of 15, he was accused of sexual assault, And four years later, he was accused of rape by a girl he had befriended who had become pregnant. Both cases were dropped. Then in 1996, when he was 19, he kidnapped a sex worker who he bound, raped and robbed at knife point. But this wasn't enough for him. And just two days later, he did the same again, this time with a 24-year-old sex worker. Driving around for 24 miles in his car while holding her at knife point. Chapman, who lived in Middlesbrough at the time, had picked up the women from central Middlesbrough in a stolen car bearing false number plates. At his trial, Teesside Crown Court was told how he forced the women to strip, have sexual intercourse and commit other sex acts with a knife to their throat. The older woman was taken on a terrifying road trip to an isolated part of a disused railway line in County Durham. She was sure that she was going to be killed. Both victims were searched by him and the cash they were carrying was taken from them. Chapman felt arrogant, untouchable and told the second victim what he had done just days before. But she went to the police and then the first victim picked him out in identity parade. At the trial, his barrister said that Chapman had disadvantaged himself by choosing to leave home and live a life dishonesty. He was a weak and ineffectual man who was also emotionally damaged, he said. Chapman was found guilty of two counts of rape and kidnap and sentenced to seven years in a young offenders institute as he was branded a danger to women. Chapman served around half of his sentence and then was required to sign the sex offenders register. On his release, he moved to Bristol and was arrested for deception offences and in February the following year was arrested in Liverpool 
for the rape and kidnap of another sex worker. He'd enticed her into his car, and because of his meek and mild looks and manner, she agreed to go to a house where he kept some money. It was there that he produced a knife, tied her up, kept her prisoner for 14 hours and raped her. He was charged and remanded in custody, but the case was later discontinued. Detective Inspector Mick Callan, the head of Durham's major crime squad, said, She told police that at first she didn't feel threatened because of his manner. The truth is that he is anything but meek and mild. He is a devious and dangerous individual and could well be responsible for other similar offences. In 2002, he headed northwest to Runcord, Merseyside, where he lived with a new girlfriend who had a young child. But as you might imagine, Chapman wasn't open and transparent, and among all the lies he told her, he neglected to mention that he had spent time in prison for sexual offences. His girlfriend was aghast. She was incensed when she found out, and immediately asked him to leave. Not long after, Chapman was arrested on suspicion of rape of another sex worker in Cheshire, but again the case was dropped. In 2003, he was again under suspicion for a knife-point rape, but again, yeah, the case was abandoned. Despite being on the sex offender's register and having to notify police of his whereabouts, he chose not to do so, and he travelled to a number of different parts of the UK. Soon there was a warrant out for his arrest, and in 2004 he was recalled to prison and jailed for another 15 months. His movements are unclear until 2006, when he enrolled on a computer course at a school. And by 2009, there was another warrant out for his arrest, after he left the scene of a hit and run. At this time he'd moved to the Thames Valley, where he befriended another woman, but he soon fell out of a neighbour whose house was later destroyed by fire. Chapman was the prime suspect and disappeared very quickly afterwards, taking with him a laptop computer he had stolen. He then headed back to his roots on Teesside after first fraudulently buying a car on eBay, using the details of his ex-girlfriend in Runcorn. He was living for a time at the Metro Hotel, close to the A19 in Stockton, and was super active on the computer he had stolen, and his aim was women, young women those women who had not given him a second glance in real life, and frankly, a man like Chapman, who by this stage was on the run from police and now living in his car, was not an enticing option for anybody. So here he reinvented himself online, where he called himself Peter Cartwright or DJ Pete, and used pictures of young men to present himself as an attractive 16-year-old and get young girls to send him pictures. Soon he had approaching 3,000 friends on Facebook and all of them were female and aged between 13 and 31. But online fantasy wasn't enough for him, it wasn't his thing. He wanted to make things happen in real life. After a botched attempt to get a 15-year-old to meet him in Hartlepool, she fled when she saw him and realised that he certainly wasn't the attractive teenage boy. Chapman knew that he needed to change his approach and was very clear what he needed to do. On the 19th of October 2009, six days before Ashley Hall disappeared, she noticed Chapman's online persona and they began to chat on Facebook. They arranged to meet, but he failed to turn up for their first meeting, scarred by the previous experience in Hartlepool. But two days later, 
keeping up the pretense of being Peter Cartwright. He arranged for Ashley to be picked up by a man he said would be his father. This sounded fine to Ashley. Before he arrived at her home on the evening of the 25th of October, he texted her saying, Hi hun, it's Pete's dad. Are you sure you don't mind me picking you up? Pete is really looking forward to seeing you, and yes, it's okay for you to stay. Just a few seconds later, Ashley replied, No, it's fine. I don't mind. I trust him. So I trust you. And thank you. Chapman sent another text message, pretending to be Peter, which said, Me dad's on his way, babe. He says excuse the state of him, lol. He doesn't have to come in and meet your mum, does he? He'll be a mess, probably. Oh, and are you wearing some sexy underwear for me? He he. She replied, Okay, babe. And no, he doesn't, lol. And it's okay, haha. What car has he got? And you'll just have to wait and see, won't you? With two kisses. He then texts her to say, My dad's on his way, babe. She replied, He's here, babe. But once in the car, Ashley knew she'd made a terrible mistake. Chapman drove the terrified Ashley to an area off the A177 at a lay-by at Thorpe Larches near Sedgefield. Here she was forced to perform oral sex on him and then raped. Despite her pleading to be let free to go home, Chapman was having none of it. He removed her lower clothing and gagged her with duct tape which he wound around her face and arms. At one point he removed the bindings from her arms to allow her to pull up her clothing but he then retied her, winding yet more tape over her face which suffocated her. He then dumped her body in a farmer's field. Ashley Hall was just 17 years old when she died. The next day, October the 26th, Chapman just randomly drove around the area. Three days earlier, Merseyside police had put information on the police national computer, stating that Chapman was wanted for arson, breach of the sex offenders register and theft. The information was that he was driving a blue Ford Mondeo car, and the report was given a medium priority. Based on this, at 5.07pm on the 26th of October, Chapman was pulled over by police. After he was put in a cell, he told officers he had killed someone. Keeping police guessing for hours, as he didn't want to give his real name, he said, I killed somebody last night. I need to tell somebody from CID where the body is. I had to tell you today. I couldn't just leave her like that. Has anyone been in touch with her family? He then led officers to a ditch on farmland close to where his car was stopped, where they discovered the terrible sight of Ashley's fully clothed body in the ditch. Chapman had made no attempt to cover his tracks. Ashley's mobile phone was still in the car, as was a bag containing her clothes and other personal effects. Police found a screwed up length of used duct tape on the cardboard end of a roll. Next to a brown paper McDonald's bag was more tape with Ashley's hair still tucked to it and a used condom was recovered from the CD console. Andrea Hall learnt of her daughter's death on the 30th time she rang her mobile phone after her disappearance when it was answered by a police officer. Chapman planned to plead not guilty to the crime but changed his plea at the last moment admitting kidnapping, raping and murdering Ashley at Teesside Crown Court. Ashley's mum, Andrea, sat with her hands clasped and her arms linked with two friends in the public galleries the hearing began. When Chapman, who was unshaven, 
and wearing a pale grey top entered the dock, Andrea couldn't hold back the emotion and her friends comforted her as the tears began to fall. Chapman was flanked by three security guards and a dock officer as the charges were put to him. He stared at the floor and pinched the bridge of his nose as he entered his guilty pleas in a barely audible voice. Ashley's mum visibly grimaced and she twisted round in her chair to stare at the man who'd murdered her daughter. He wouldn't meet her gaze and stared straight ahead at Judge Peter Fox QC, recorder of Middlesbrough. Peter Chapman was told he must serve at least 35 years in prison. The judge said he was a very great danger to young women, and for what it's worth, I cannot foresee your release. He said that Chapman had been the architect of an evil scheme, very carefully brought, and with considerable detail to trap your victim. Afterwards, speaking outside the court, Andrea Hall said that the authorities should have done more to monitor Chapman's whereabouts after his release from prison. They are the sort of people who should be tagged and they should be kept an eye on all the time. They shouldn't be allowed out into society anyway. She added that it was wrong that Chapman, as a registered sex offender, was able to post online as a teenage boy, saying, He took somebody else's photo and put it on the internet and has been posing behind this photo. It's awful to think there's actually a boy out there and he's using his photo to prey on young girls. She expressed her frustration that she was powerless to stop Ashley going out on the night she met Chapman. What could I have done, she asked. She was 17. You don't stop your kids from going out. She also recalled the horror of hearing a police officer answer her daughter's phone. She said, I could understand it if Ashley had died because of illness but to actually have taken somebody's life makes it just unbearable. She wasn't a bad kid, she wasn't naughty. She made one mistake and paid for it with her life. It's not Ashley's fault what happened. All we can do as parents is to try to get across to them that there were two sides to the internet. I'll spare you the rant this week, but as we so often hear, there were apologies aplenty when the various reports were published showing how the authorities let Ashley down. One report into the case by the Independent Police Complaints Authority found that the police missed several chances to stop Chapman. His car came up 16 times on the automatic number plates recognition system before he was stopped. And it took police in Merseyside nine months to notice that proper checks were not being made on him as a sex offender. And of course, as we've heard, a number of cases where he was implicated were also dropped. You won't be surprised to hear that Chapman has been attacked in jail. We also have an insight into what he is thinking and what he did from a series of letters to a friend from his cell in Her Majesty's Prison, Franklin, County Durham. In the documents, he complains about life in jail, saying, I'm only six months into this and I really can't see me coping too well for the rest of my life. All I do is sit in my cell or lay on my bed watching telly, sometimes bored out of my head. I don't know where the papers get the idea from that people in prison have Facebook or the internet. Trust me, we don't have access to any internet. We can't even get free view digital TV channels. In the news, they always say we have amazing lives in here. We have everything like Playstations, etc. But in reality, that's a load of crap, hun. I just sit in my cell all day earning £2.15 per week. Great that, isn't it? 
Chapman also confessed his reason for killing Ashley. Although with someone who lies as much as Chapman, who knows just how much of the truth is actually there. He claimed that he killed Ashley because she reminded him of another girl who messed my head up. And that night I lost the plot completely, because Ashley looked too much like someone who really messed my head up and was saying the same sort of things, and I just lost it because she wouldn't shut up, he said. That's why I put the tape over her mouth, just to shut her up. I honestly didn't mean it to happen like it did, but I can't change what's happened. I really wish I could. In the letters, he said he would be willing to go to Afghanistan to defuse bombs. Maybe they should send prisoners like me over there to clear the bombs, then fewer soldiers will be killed, and only us scum will be blown up. That would sort the prison overcrowding problem out too, he said. Do you think I should suggest that idea to David Cameron? I'll be the first one to sign up if they wanted volunteers to do this. I should have joined the army when I was 16 and left school. Then I'd either be dead or have a totally different life to this. Ashley's mum, Andrea, was reported to have agreed with this idea. I'll be very happy indeed for him to be sent to Afghanistan to clear bombs, she said. He should have been hung anyway. He should be dead for what he did to my daughter. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Once more, it is a story of just absolute, utter horror. Throughout his life, Chapman appeared to show anger towards sex workers, an anger which would then extend to all females. There seemed to be a planned, almost campaign to vent his rage on women said one forensic psychiatrist. And again, as we see so often, the element of bad luck that caused Ashley to lose her precious life at his hands is palpable. I spoke earlier about the sheer number of girls approached by Chapman on the internet. He actually made contact with 2,981 girls aged between 13 and 31. His email account showed 100 young girls accepted him as a friend on the day that he contacted Ashley. But then it was just bad luck that Ashley was the one to meet him. And I know we can talk about precautions she should or shouldn't have taken. But so many of us have taken similar or much worse risks. And we've been fine. Ashley would be approaching 30 now. And it is just such a terrible waste. We can only hope that her family and friends are able to carve out some sort of life after the dreadful loss of Ashley. And as for Chapman, well, frankly, who cares? Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Join us at the Facebook group to discuss this story and all aspects of UK True Crime and to support the show and to listen to almost 30 bonus episodes and see the video that I posted this week of where I record this podcast at my home. Please head to patreon.com slash a UK true crime. So that is all from me for today. So until we speak again next week, please, please, no more messages about the mighty Leeds United. It's still too raw. Take it easy. And of course, always stay classy. Cheerio for now.